his luck. He really needs a job. Things get really desperate. Uh, he gets wind that the zoo is hiring. And so he goes to the local zoo to ask uh, if perhaps uh, they have a job for him. They do indeed have a job for uh, this man. Apparently their uh, well-loved gorilla had just passed away and the public didn't really know about it yet and they wanted him to dress up in a gorilla suit to pretend to be the gorilla. And that was his job. He's a little, little humbled by it but decided to take it because he really needed money. And so over the next weeks, he pretends to be this gorilla, and kids love him, but over time, the, there's diminishing returns on this gorilla act that he's doing. So he starts to get a little more adventurous. One day he's swinging, uh, and the kids are loving it. He swings a little too much, throws himself into the next cage, which happens to be the lion, and starts yelling, help, help, help. To which the lion immediately runs over and pounces on him and says, be quiet or we're both going to get fired. <laughs> Tough moments hit us all at some point in life, don't they? Just like that man. Maybe they're not as tough, maybe they're not as humbling as that moment, but tough moments hit us all at some point. Some are profoundly difficult, some aren't so bad, but none of us are exempt. And so as we look at Joel this morning, I want us to, to ask the question, which is bigger than the text, I think, uh, but it is how do we find right amidst the wrong? When things come at us, particularly when things come at us that we really didn't cause, and they kind of come out of nowhere, what do, we, what do we do in those situations? This is just one little sliver of how to answer that question that we encounter here in Joel. And, and just so we're clear on the beginning, there is such thing as right and wrong, and there is a right and a wrong response to things that can happen to us. We won't unpack all of that this morning. But let's just be clear. Right and wrong exists, and we have to operate within that world. If we look at the book of Joel, and, and you kind of look at the setting, I think it does matter for our purposes this morning to orient ourselves. Um, there's no date given in the book of Joel. There isn't even a lot of what we call internal evidence in the book of Joel that can help us pinpoint an exact date of when it would have been written historically. We can kind of pinpoint when it wasn't written. Almost every scholar I've looked at agrees on when it wasn't written. It's just a short window. But, but they kind of hum and ha over whether it was written before what we call the exile or after it seems that most of the, the scholars that, that I've seen aim at after the exile, and what, what that means practically for the book is that you have a relative period of calm in the lives of the people in Joel. Now, if you read Joel, you see that it's not calm for very long, but they've been living in, in kind of routine. They know that all around them are people who would do them harm and different civilizations and, and uh, nations that are around them that, that would gladly come in and attack, but there's no imminent danger. It's, it's much like for us, the world that we live in kind of post 9-11 where we go to the airport and we have the security and we know there's always a risk, but we take off our shoes and our belts and our watches and everything else and the laptop goes in a separate container and you send it all through the machine and we know we kind of just 
we, we kind of walk through it with a smile, right? We don't expect that things are necessarily right around the corner going to hit us. That's the world they're living in. They know there's a possibility of problems, but they're living uh, pretty comfortably, routine lives. Things are going fairly well. And then if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, you discover the locusts come. And the locusts come to devour everything that they have. I've not encountered locusts like this. I've encountered dust storms when I lived in northern Colorado where you kind of look out and all of a sudden the mountains disappear and you think, I better get inside within five minutes or this is going to hurt. And you get inside, blow through, come out, and there's minor damage, your car's dusty, that kind of thing. But this is catastrophic when this flood of locusts comes in and eats everything. And if you want to personalize it to how it feel like in our day and age, this would be like hackers hitting your bank account and taking your savings and your checking all at once. That's what it would feel like to them. How are we going to survive? Day to day, how are we going to live? How are we going to buy food? That sort of thing is what it feels like to them. And it's a national event. It's not just a personal event. Everybody's experiencing this. There's national fear. Again, if you go to 9-11, that's one of those days that many of us lived out where we experienced a day where everybody kind of felt the same feeling almost. Just real fear. And yet, just if you take 9-11 for an example again, there's a generation even in the room that didn't experience it to which that's a memory, a historical event. And that's much like up until the point of the locusts, that's what these people had experienced. Relative calm with not a lot of disruption at this point, as far as we can tell. So if you go to the text, Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Start, start verse 2, excuse me. It says, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? This is a new thing. Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generation. And then it talks about locusts upon locusts upon locusts upon locusts have now come in and eaten everything. It's telling them what already happened in that sense. It's, it's reinforcing the fact that when this destruction and devastation comes on, they have no protocol for response yet. They haven't experienced this. This is new territory for them. How do we respond to such catastrophe is what they're struck with. And then if you read on, when we get to chapter 2 in just a moment, you see that this locust swarm was just a sign of what was to come. Of the day of the Lord, which we're waiting for still. The day of great judgment. And the implication here is that this is a training moment. You're never going to be ready for the day of the Lord if you're not ready to face this kind of catastrophe. If this kind of adversity is going to throw you off this much, then when the day of judgment comes at the end, you're sunk. This is a training moment. How is God going to train them as they go through this tragedy? So you go on to chapter 2 of Joel, starting at verse 1, where it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Blow the trumpet. Maybe your translation has blow the shofar, which is closer to the original. It's the same function. The shofar is the ram's horn that they would blow 
to start, let's say, worship, but in this case, to call everyone together. This crisis has come. Let's call everybody together and make sure we understand what we're supposed to do now. How do we handle when this destruction comes? How do we manage this catastrophe? And, And how we manage this catastrophe, that will mark us either as God's people or not. And further, as we saw in Joel 1, it not only marks us as God's people, but our children and their children. We're setting up the marching orders down the line in how to deal with tough times and yet be God's own. That's what they're facing in this. We can all deal with things that come our way in various different ways. Let me read you. This is a bit of satire, so you can uh, laugh a little bit here. This is one I read years ago from The Onion. Single bee sends gathering of humans into helpless panic. A western honeybee measuring barely one quarter of an inch in length and weighing approximately .03 ounces triggered panic among a gathering of six fully grown humans during a picnic at Davis Park on Monday, witnesses reported. Where is it? Where is it? Said 44-year-old general manager Charles Freed who has been described by his co-workers and business rivals as ruthless after the bee happened to fly in his general direction. Get it off me! Get it off me! The college-educated humans, all of whom are not allergic to bee sting venom and possess both cerebral and muscular capacities several orders of magnitude beyond that of the insect, proceeded to retreat in abject fright from its half-millimeter stinger, which, when used, causes a twinge of discomfort followed by mild irritation, and kills the bee. After the bee seemingly disappeared, the humans, members of a species that domesticated the wolf, built the pyramids, and landed a manned vehicle on the surface of the moon, walked cautiously back to the picnic area. I think it's gone, said personal trainer Marcus Weller. A few seconds later, the bee emerged from an overturned Coke can, prompting the humans to scream and retreat once more. They opted not to return to the area, abandoning several hundred dollars worth of food and picnicking equipment. The brutalized park goers characterized the day as totally ruined. The bee, which was reportedly never more than vaguely aware of the presence of other living organisms besides the blooming plants it sought, eventually returned to its hive without incident. We can deal with all kinds of adversity. Obviously, that's tongue-in-cheek in different ways, right? That's over the top, completely over the top. But that's how I would react, incidentally. What's the right response, though? What's the right response to sudden and unexpected adversity? Or when things come our way like this? I want to point out that, again, we're not going to dig to the bottom of the answer of this, but Joel gives us some answers here and some important ones. I think we, got to, we have to recognize that reactions and regrets matter in these situations. And if we start with reactions, when, when tragedy comes away, crisis, adversity, as it does for all of us in one way, shape, or form, uh, we do not get to react how we want to react in every circumstance. Not, not everything is an equal and valid reaction. This is why there is a right and a wrong. If you get into a car accident with somebody else, you're not allowed to get out and punch them in the face. Worse, you're not allowed to kill them, right? Even if it weren't written in our laws, that would be wrong. 
So not every reaction is equal and valid when we face difficulties. The, the thing about that that we should re, re, understand is that the way we respond, we want to avoid responding in a way that we would regret later because that's just going to compound any feelings that we have and make it even worse as we go on. We don't want to do things that we'll regret. And one of the things I think we actually will regret deeply and, and often do when we go through difficult circumstances is we regret wasted time. We regret time when we, we dug in too deeply to the emotion of the moment and let that overtake us. Now the emotions might be very valid in many cases, but sometimes we can take them too far. We might be angry, but then we can become angry and that's all we are. We can have a moment of fear, but then we can become fearful. And we get misshapen along the way. One of the things that can happen though, why we don't want to regret the time, is that when difficult times come, that's a time when God has the power to shape us in profound ways. And for the better. So I read years ago in a parenting book, uh, it, it's shown, it's revealed itself to me as true many times, but it was nice to see it in writing, that when you take kids or youth out to do service, whether it's as big as a mission trip or as small as going to the city mission. That in those hours and even days after those kinds of acts of service, they are far more teachable in those moments. They're ready and open to hear what, uh, they, they realized what they take for granted. And you can have great conversations about what God might be doing in the world, what might God might be doing in their own lives, what God might be, what redemption might look like. All kinds of great conversations. There are sponges at those moments. But aren't we the same when we face adversity? If we recognize the Lord's presence in those moments, isn't that an opportunity? We shouldn't want it. We shouldn't desire it. I don't desire hard times any more than anybody else. But when they come, that's a time when we are actually very malleable and shapeable by God. And so you plus adversity, that equals a shapeable person. Somebody who can be directed towards God's ways. We, we do when difficult times come. We, we get to grieve and we have to grapple with and cry about things and do all the things that come with a difficult moment. But we also have the opportunity for God to shape us into something more than we were before the adversity. And to not recognize God's presence in the moment is to waste that time. And we want to be careful of that. But the truth of the matter is that we have to recognize is I think culturally speaking, we're not all that great at dealing with hardship when it comes our way. I think that's why this is such a present text for us to hear. We're not that good at dealing with hardship, and we, we have all these coping mechanisms that we dig into a little bit too deeply. And I think that can, that's borne out in our eating habits and our spending habits and our drinking habits. I think we see that as a culture, right? We cope with hardship through self-medication. We reach for the bottle of pills right away instead of dealing with the problem. So we can see it in, in our eating habits. As I said, comfort food. Mine's ice cream. I love it right? Maybe it's macaroni and cheese, maybe it's chocolate for you. 
We can see it in uh, the, the increase in drinking that's going on around us, in uh, increase in use of caffeine, uh, whether it's smoking for some people. We can see oversleeping. We can see people's TV, movie, uh, entertainment, small screen habits changing. We can see it in people becoming more and more isolated. And I think that's borne out even if you go to the grocery store and you see people isolated everywhere they go, right? Headphones on all the time. Avoid human interaction. You can see it in deeper and darker ways from people. That when hardship comes, they dig in too deeply and, and they project that anger. So they're mean as they, as they dig into those crisis moments. Or they're negative about everything. If nothing's going right for me, it better not go right for you. Uh, they ignore the problem. We become Pollyanna in some cases. right? I can be guilty of this. Or they turn to worse things, porn, drugs, you name it. Those, by the way, in and of themselves are bad. We cope, and sometimes we overcope, and sometimes we cope in unhealthy ways with hardship that comes our way, ignoring the real problem that's there. And I think that I saw evidence of that this week in my news feed, as I saw numerous articles this week that pointed out that next time you go to your primary care physician, what are they going to ask about? Your drinking habits. Why? Because they're through the roof now in our country. We're not good at coping with hardship. We're doing it in difficult and wrong ways. And we make them the butt of jokes so that we can cope with it even more and cover it over. We're okay as long as the wine holds out kind of memes that you see on social media. And half of the problem, of course, is self-control. Half of it is unhealthy coping. But when we can self-medicate so easily and so often, guess what we'll do? We'll self-medicate. When it's that easy and available and we can avoid the actual issues at hand, we'll take things to excess without realizing it. And we pacify the problem when God wants to make us new through the problem. When God wants to shape us and redeem us. And what sits behind that all too often is fear. We're fearful. Fear is, just to define it for us this morning from dictionary.com, an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain, or a threat. We want to avoid those things. That's a natural thing. But our fear often reveals a lack of trust in God. It reveals a lack of trust in what God can do, and so we try and take things into our own hands out of fear, and we cope instead of moving in to what God could do in those difficult times. But those with eyes to see, those with ears to hear, recognize that God is very present, even in those darkest moments, even in those difficult times. So the shofar is blown. People gather around. Let's go back to the text, Joel 2. What does God say? And let's remember as we read this, this is prophecy so Joel is speaking the word of God to the people. So as we read this, we're hearing God. Virtually firsthand. Let's hear the words for ourselves too. God is speaking to us this morning. The, the shofar is blowing. The people have gathered. Verse 13, it says, Rend your heart and not your garments. So don't just, don't just do the outer tearing, but open up your heart to what God has. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Can we read that verse together? Let's do it. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents 
from sending calamity. Verse 14 goes on, who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. It turns out that God reveals his presence in the darkness. It's there when things are going well, but God reveals himself in the darkness as well, and God provides right direction in wrong times. This is God's word to the people. They have no protocol. God says, here's what you should do. Open up your hearts to me so that you can be shaped in these difficult times. Let me in in this moment. The whole thrust of the book of Joel aims us at, at two things, one of which is why it's appropriate for Thanksgiving. One is repentance, and one is to give thanks. And maybe you're thinking, this was a lot of depressing stuff to get to the give thanks part, Pastor Evan. Thanks a lot. Be thankful. We'll get there. But repent is the first thing that Joel talks about. Rend your heart, not your garments. Turn around. Repent. And repenting is a two-step thing, right? You're turning from anything that's contrary to God towards God. And that in indicates a walking towards God direction. You, you don't just stand in place if you repent. You're, it's active. You're turning from, moving towards. That's what you're doing. You have to do both of those things. And I think if we're going to live out repentance in a practical way, where we turn from one and move towards the other, we can actually see the element of thanksgiving that gets brought in there. And Joel does it. You can see it if you read the text. Chapter 2 is a great example. Uh, you can see that um, uh, as, we read the, as you read through the Old Testament, you can see that uh, there are many other places where what God has done has been listed out. And that's what I think we need to do. We need to list what the Lord has done. List the good, the good things that God has done in your life. I think that's part of repentance. You turn from one towards the other. And as you turn, you're listing out, God, you are good because. God, you are praiseworthy because. God, thank you that you have. That's why we write the cards and put them on there. Because we're recognizing from a thankful heart all that God has blessed us with already that we don't even recognize half the time. And what's fascinating is as you list this out and you look at the text where it lists out some of these things, here are a couple of really amazing things God does. I was really struck by this. God names the problems of the people for them. Not in a judgmental way. In a set the protocol helpful way. So that he can move them forward. So if you go to Joel 2.17. It says, Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the porticos and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should, they, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? God names their problems for them. So remember, this is prophecy. God is speaking through Joel, his word, to the people. And he speaks for the people too. Say to the priests, this is what you're going to say. And what he's doing is he's voicing the concerns of the people. He's saying, I know what you're already going through. You're afraid. Here's why you're afraid. He names it for them. And when we name a sin or when we name things that are going wrong in our life, all of a sudden we begin to strip it of its power in our lives. All those coping mechanisms we talked about earlier, it's not bad to eat a little chocolate, right, if you have a bad day. 
But if that's what you do every day, all day, you might have a problem. But if you name it, you say, okay, I'm trying to cope in an inappropriate way. All of a sudden, you're stripping it of its power. You can do something with it. Same thing goes for anything much deeper issues that we might face. God names it for them. Let me name the problem. Let me help you out and speak it for you. God gives us the words even in those difficult things. That's something we should be thankful for. In Romans 8, we have a familiar passage to many of us where 8.26, Paul writes, We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. That power is given to us as well. We might not always know what we need to say or bring before God when things aren't right. But God will speak on our behalf when we go through grief and difficulty, pain, sorrow, and guilt. The question is, are we allowing him in? Have we rendered our hearts and opened up? God, I will allow you to speak into this. Can you tell me what I need to hear, first of all? Can you name it? We should be thankful. God does the work of the people. The second thing that God does is God redeems the time that they've lost. So nothing really is wasted. If they will walk with him, God brings that redemption to them. If you go to verses 25 and 26, it says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. When we do things, when difficult times come, like self-medicate, medicate, like inappropriately cope with the problem, functionally what we're doing is sinning because we're taking on the role of God. That's what we're actually doing. That's why it's such a big problem. We are actually in those moments saying no to God and no to God's power to redeem us. Thank you very much. I'll do it myself. That's what we're saying. But we can be thankful because God is the one who comes and speaks in those dark, dark and difficult times and tells us what we actually need to hear, what we actually need to do, and calls us out that we would be shaped and, diff and become different and even become something new. But that only happens when we belong to the Lord, not to ourselves. We have to hand ourselves over to God first. So as you think about that listing out the things that God has done, is it possible that by just making a list of what God has done for you, that by naming those things, is it possible that by making a list of what God has done for you, that God might actually name your sin, reveal his forgiveness, and redeem your hardest moments? Is it possible that God could in fact do something so powerful in our lives as to make us new? just by being grateful and thankful people. So we list out the things, what God has done. The second thing I think that, that we catch from Joel is that we need to celebrate what God has done. You list it out, but you celebrate what the Lord has done. Go to Joel 2.23. You can pick out many verses like this. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice. 
in the Lord your God. For he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Rejoice. That's what it tells us. This is written to the people. You can rejoice alone. We can do it all the time, right? You have a project that you're doing at home or at work. You're alone, doing it on your own. You've conquered the project. Yes, right? That's rejoicing in the moment. I do it. You do it. It's an awesome thing to do. But why would you? Don't you want to tell somebody that you conquered it? Don't you want to tell somebody what good things the Lord has done? That's what rejoicing is. It's letting it out of you. Here's an example of, of uh, not rejoicing, but uh, why it takes two, I suppose. A few years ago, uh, I was in our, down in our garage. We have two independent garage doors. And uh, Saturday morning, nice day. I closed both garage doors at the same time, watched them go down. And so you understand my personality. I'm only competitive against myself. I'm not really competitive against other people. So next week's sermon, I'm competing against myself. I want it to be better than this week's sermon. I'm always thinking that way. But if I'm in a, like a race with you, I'm like, hey, you did a good job. You know, I don't care if I won or not. My wife is totally different, right? My wife is competitive and has very good smack talk to go with that. Like she wants to win it. And she wants to let you know that she won it. And so I pressed the two garage doors noticing that mine was a nanosecond faster. And so I walked up the stairs for fun and saw her in the kitchen. I said, I just wanted you to know that my garage door is faster than yours and I don't care. Ooh, that got her going. She was, we were having fun with that for a while. I didn't tell her it was a nanosecond faster. But that kind of thing is not fun by yourself, is it? You have to have two to enjoy those kinds of moments. That's the kind of relationship we have. This wasn't a bad thing. This was a good thing. Um, rejoicing is the same way. You won't, it's supposed to come out of you. And, and I don't want to steal all of our thunder for Advent because joy is, is part of that, but um, is the theme. But we worship together so that we can celebrate and rejoice because those two things go together. In worship, we sing songs. We read scripture. And I realized I missed it this morning. That's what I was missing. We read songs. We read scripture. We pray together. And what are we doing? We're listing out those things that God has done. And then there's also an emotive component to worshiping. Like we're, we're actually excited to do it. We actually sing. And we actually raise hands or do whatever it is or put hands up forward or put them together or lower heads. We do all kinds of things that, are, that actually show the emotion of it. And rejoicing has both of those components. It can't have just one or the other. It's got to be cognitive, brainy stuff, and emotive, and heart stuff put together. God, you've done this, and I think everybody should know. It's got to come out of you or else it's not really rejoicing. And we, we worship together so that we can do that together. We celebrate as well so we don't forget what God has done. We have surprisingly short memories sometimes for what God has done in our lives. And so we build those markers of faith into our life uh, together as a people. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, liturgies, confessions, songs, and the repetition of those things matters very much. Yes, God heard us the first time, but God will hear us the second time, but actually it needs to remind us 
of what it is that God has done. And that's where I think the timing of Joel is important for us to recognize. I pointed out at the beginning, scholars can't really date it. Joel gives us no help in dating, and there kind of seems to be a little intentionality about that. There are two Old Testament prophets, Jonah and Joel, who give us no good indication of when they were written, and it almost seems like it's on purpose, because we need to hear it over and over and over again. Because yes, it was relevant for the time it was written, but it's relevant for every time thereafter. And we need to be reminded. We need to hear that when the locusts come in, God is there in the midst of it. And here's the protocol. And here's what to do. Repetition trains us in righteousness. We need to keep doing it over and over. So when tragedy strikes, we know where to look and it sets the protocol for us. How do we find the right answer amidst the wrong then? Of course, we didn't exhaustively answer that, but I think we have something good to go on on this Sunday before Thanksgiving. That we list what God has done. We're thankful from the inside out, and then we celebrate what God has done. That's the protocol when things go wrong. That we allow the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, to speak in to our lives and speak that which hurts and that which has affected us. But then we recognize that God did that. We recognize that God shapes us through that and God speaks for us. And we repent from anything that that takes us away from God's presence. We list God's goodness. We celebrate it. We rejoice it together. And by listing and celebrating and remembering, I think we fulfill the words of Joel 2.27 at the very end of our section. It says, Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. By listening, by celebrating, by remembering, we acknowledge who the Lord is. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord who gave us Jesus Christ. That we could be with him in his presence and be redeemed. Even when bad things happen. We acknowledge who we are before the Lord through that action. As our response this morning, we'll pray in just a moment. But I'm going to have our students come up. And they're going to line up on the stage here. And they're going to read some of the things that we're thankful for. So we can actually do what the text says. After they read, I will pray. And then we will sing together as our response. His oven doers forever. Let the redeem of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeem from the hand of the foe, those he gather from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. Now we'll be reading some. I'm thankful for God's grace. A really fun fourth and eighth grade Saturday, Sunday school class. Loving and generous friends and family. I am thankful for God, his love, and word. Church, family, friends, good health, and music. I am thankful for family, warm chocolate chip cookies, mom and dad, snow, friends, books, ocean breeze, health, boat on a still lake. 
the chance to go to Panama and share the gospel, support of family and friends, a great Christian school. Um, then Clara, Neil, Sophie, Gio, Ailey, parents, Joe, James, cousins, grandma, grandpa, grandpa, grandma N, travel, Montana, cars, shelter, warmth, turkey, food, more food, aunts, uncles, mentors, Pastor Evan, coats, jackets, Christmas, Easter, art, tables, hats, gloves, music, Toby Mac, Lecrae, lots of things, technology, candy, and Jesus. I'm thankful for church, family, that that pursues biblical truth. And I'm thankful for my health, my job, my son, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's unfailing love. I'm thankful for our church, for all the women in my Bible study, for... Friends, for family, for health, for shelter, for Christian friends, for our church staff. Thankful. I have an amazing wife that supports my my spirit, me spiritually and emotionally. I am thankful. God takes care of us financially and gives me situations to grow closer to Him. I'm thankful for new concrete kids that love Jesus, a job I love and allows me to love others, family who loves you, a good job that provides for my family, my beautiful wife, and my godly husband. Thankful for freedom to worship. Thank you. Let's say thanks. You can find your seat. Let's say thanks to God. Lord, for all these things, we are thankful and many more. As one of the cards simply said, we're thankful for lots of things. God, we really are. We don't even know all the things we should be thankful for. You are so good. You are so good. And compassionate and generous, abounding in love. So God, today, we are thankful. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who makes us thankful. Amen.